My name's Todd, I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Community, and we are deep into a teaching series uh, that we've been in here for a few weeks now, and um, someone asked me how many more we have left to do, and I'm not, I have no idea. So we're just, just buckle in, we're, I think we're in this for the long haul. The series is called Emotionally Healthy. The series is really about becoming an emotionally healthy church made up of emotionally healthy people. And we said that one of the reasons that's important and one of the reasons that we believe we should be talking about this and learning about this is because Jesus was an emotional being and Jesus was emotionally healthy. So then part of the process then, it just stands to reason, of becoming a, a follower of Jesus and becoming more like Jesus, part of that process is to become more and more emotionally mature and emotionally healthy. Anybody sitting in the back corner over there, feel free to go over there and close that door. Because we love our kids, but it's best when they're not hurt. Um, <laughs> we do. I tell you what, some Sunday, when that lighthouse comes on, that means, that means kids' rooms are open. So at any point when that light comes on, go take a stroll through our kids' rooms, and it'll energize you. It'll, it'll, it'll give you hope for the future of the church, and I'm so grateful for our kids' ministries. So we started in this series uh, saying and asking this question, what if our emotions are places to meet with God? What if uh, God is already there waiting for us in the place of our emotion? And my prayer for all of us in this series, for all of us as individuals, for all of us as couples, for all of us as households, as families, and as a church, is that God would bring us to a place of emotional maturity and emotional health as followers of Jesus. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us to this place today for this time. pray that you would um, just quiet our minds and our hearts today. May our, our spirits be open to your Holy Spirit today as you speak to us. Speak clearly through your word today and, and I pray that we'd uh, come away from this time encouraged and challenged and uh, ready to take those next steps in following Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I want to start this morning by reading a couple of verses. I'm going to just, can I just have a, just a little dis, full disclosure up front? Every message so far in this series, I've given you a ton of scripture, a ton of scripture references. Today, I'm giving you one short passage. We're going to look at two different versions of it, and then we're going to use that as a springboard. So I just want you to know that's, we're, that's how we're approaching this today. All right? So we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 11. I want to talk about something that has the potential to sabotage, to undermine, and derail everything that we've talked about so far in this series, and most likely everything we're going to talk about in the future in this series. It's that important. So let's read this verse, a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus speaking says this, it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is an invitation for all the tired, burned out, worn down, stressed out, over busy people. I love Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of this passage from Matthew in, in the message. He says, are you, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me 
and work with me. Do we have this on the screen? Because uh, this is what I want you to see. We can go to the next screen. This is the phrase I want you to take away. And he says, learn the unformed, unforced rhythms of grace. There it is. Thank you. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. This is an invitation to an unhurried life. Where, where it feels good right down to your bones to wake up in the morning, to stare down another day, and follow Jesus. But how many of you read words like this, and if you're honest with yourself, or if you and I were to sit down for coffee, which would be cool, and you were to shoot straight with me, how many of you would, would say, well, to be honest, I can't relate to that? Because I consider myself a follower of Jesus. I do my best to follow Jesus. I think I'm a follower of Jesus, like I'm here most of the time. I, I think of myself in that way, but to be honest, I am tired. I am worn out. I am kind of burned out on religion. So if that's you, if that's your felt experience of what it means to follow Jesus, to pursue a biblical spirituality, then you are not alone, all right? People all around you this morning, to your right and to your left and in front of you and behind you, we tend to feel the exact same way. There's no shame in acknowledging that, yeah, this is my reality. So I have good news for you. This passage has the potential to unlock a whole new dimension in your experience as a follower of Jesus. If you've been around the church for any length of time, if you grew up in the church or you've just been around for a while, the odds are you already know this passage. You've heard it. You might even have it on a, hanging on a wall somewhere in your house. You've a, at least heard it, heard it mentioned somewhere. It's, so it's maybe, maybe it's become kind of like a cliche for you. But hidden in, in plain sight in this passage is what the philosopher and author Dallas Willard called the secret of the easy yoke. And I love that, the secret of the easy yoke. He writes this, Dallas Willard wrote this, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, etc., etc., while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail. So what he's saying here is simple but profound, that if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Let me just say that out loud again. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is just that. It's a way of life. It's not a set of ideas. It's not a collection of teachings that we call theology. It's not a list of do's and don'ts and, or what we call ethics. It's a way of life. Often, you know, in the church, particularly, I'm going to say, in Western kind of American church culture, because it's really all that we know, we say a ton about theology, we talk about ethics, but we say very little about lifestyle, but I believe that lifestyle is where the proof is. And that's what Jesus is getting at with this odd imagery of a yoke, which is first century agrarian metaphor, okay? It's lost on most of us in 2019 in America, right? Um, Frederick Dale Bruner, who's a, a scholar in the Gospel of Matthew, he wrote this, he said, oh, a yoke is a work instrument. So thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress. They need a vacation. They need a hammock, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life. 
a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens and we cannot get away from them. He says, thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers tools. Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount and, and his yoke is a way of saying his way of life, his set of teachings will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we've been living. Have you noticed there tends to be an emotional weight to life? Have you noticed that? Have you found that to be true? Would you pretend, generally you would agree with that. You could do this just so I know that you're, okay, good, all right, we're there. If, if you don't see life that way, or maybe unless you're like really young or something, I don't know. I would, I, again, I would love for you to explain to me how you do it, how you do life without a weight of doing life. Uh, there is an emotional weight if you're in tune. For me, um, it probably started in my uh, mid-30s, which is just a few, couple of years ago, where every... <laughs> wow, you are with me, great. Where every, <laughs> every year from, through my mid-30s, <coughs> I started to feel more weight. And if you can look back on that, or maybe you're right there right now, or if you're not quite there, hang with me, because this may be your experience as well. Through my mid-30s with every year, I began to feel more weight, more responsibility, more load on my back. Um, I'm hoping at some point that starts to go in the opposite direction. I thought it might be 40. That wasn't the case. I thought it might be 50. So far, I'm not finding that to be true. So I'm hoping maybe, maybe it's 60 or 90. I don't know. But I, I just know that... Uh, it seems like the older you get, the more responsibility that you carry. So there's school, and then a job, and then a career, and then maybe a spouse, and then a promotion at work, and then maybe you have a family, and then maybe you buy a house, and you buy a couple cars, and then you got another promotion at work, which carries more responsibility, more and more and more and more. And it's all the stuff you thought you wanted. And there's an emotional weight that comes with doing life, and there's an emotional weight that comes with what we tend to think of as following Jesus. So if we're honest, discipleship to Jesus, or learning to follow Jesus, that's just a churchy way of saying learning to follow Jesus, sometimes feels like another weight on top of all the others. Because like, I'm already tired of working 50 hours a week. I'm in school, I have a family, I have little kids, I have teenagers, whatever. I'm already way over busy. I don't have time on the weekend. And now you're saying, I also need to read my Bible like every day. And I need to live in community with other people. And I need to maybe share some meals with some friends. And I need to come to church like every Sunday. And it just feels like another whole thing. Let's pay close attention to Jesus' imagery. A yoke was almost always used to tie together two oxen or two donkeys or something like that to be burden, you know, in order to carry a load, to pull a cart, to plow a field. Jesus is essentially saying, come along. I'm already here. I have a yoke. You come alongside me and match your pace to mine. We have for too long expected Jesus to match his pace to ours. That's not the invitation. The invitation is to come next to me under my yoke and match your pace to mine. Let me carry the weight. Let me do some of the heavy lifting. You just tuck in right here next to me and it'll be easier. Easier. 
I think the hardest way to follow Jesus is to live like all the other people in your life and to live like all the people in your neighborhood and in your school and in your workplace, like all the people that you're, you know, that you're, the kids go to school with and play sports with and, and, and not really change your time commitments and your schedule and your money and all of that and just try to add it in on top of all the other things that life requires and just try to like to cram in the following Jesus thing, find a slot, add it in there, cram it in there, every little nook and cranny, get a little bit of it in there. That is, first of all, hard. Second of all, next to impossible. And I just, I think failure's on the horizon if that's our approach. I really believe the most effective way to follow Jesus is to radically alter our whole lifestyle. And then take the pattern set by Jesus and say, I want to live like that. Not just in my decision to love my enemy, but in like my everyday routine, in my weekly rhythm, in how I live in community with others. And when we adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, then the life of Jesus is the natural byproduct. It's the secret of the easy yoke. Now I hear that, and I hear myself say that, and I'm a bit of a skeptic by nature, so I hear, well, oh yeah, that's, that's great, that sounds great, that, good. That, I'm sure, so sure, so yeah, sure, sign me up, we'll see how that works. This. Am I alone in that? Because that's how I tend to think. Because I know about Jesus' pace of life when I read his, the, the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels in the New Testament. I know about his pace of life, and I know about mine. And they're very different. And if there's anything you pick up from uh, reading the Gospels in the New Testament, it's that Jesus was pretty much never in a hurry. His life was full and he's all over the map geographically and yet he would regularly sneak away and go and rest and pray and take a Sabbath and he was never really in a rush and never in a hurry. He would stop and there'd be interruption after interruption and people would get really frustrated with Jesus like, why are you praying for that woman? Well, because she's dying. Well, so was this other woman and anyone, like the people who were in his inner circle would get frustrated with Jesus because he was always just so in the moment. Uh, John Ortberg is a, I don't know if you, how many of you have heard of John Ortberg? He's a pastor and an author in California. He's mentored by Dallas Willard, who I quoted a minute ago. He tells a great story about uh, calling Dallas one day. And um, this is in the 90s when uh, Ortberg was a teaching pastor at Willow Creek Church, which was essentially at that time the most influential church in North America. And he's a famous teacher by now. Um, well, even then I knew his name and he was known all over America. He was, a, he was an amazing communicator. I got to hear him speak in that era in the early 2000s and he he tells a story John Ortberg does he says I call up Dallas and I'm at a spot where I just feel these are his words I just feel stuck in my efforts to mature any further in my relationship with Jesus can you identify with that you ever been there stuck in my efforts to mature any further in my relationship with Jesus and yes I'm a Bible teacher and all that stuff but I just feel stuck and I feel like I'm not where I want to be he says so I call up my mentor and I say what do I need to do and he said there was a long silence on the other end of the line and then he said this, and this is from a phone conversation between Dallas Willard and John Ortberg. And I remember John Ortberg telling this story years ago, and it stuck with me. And he said, John, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. How good is that? So Ortberg does like I would have done. Um, he gets his notepad out and he writes that down. 
And he's like, this is tweet worthy, you know, and you don't even know what that is, Dallas, and neither do I, because it's the 90s and there's no Twitter yet. But whatever, this is like, great, I'm going to hold on to this, because maybe I'll write a book about it someday. And he sits down and he takes a deep breath, and he's like, wow, okay, that's profound. So eliminate, hurry. So what's next? What else? And he says there's this long, another long, awkward silence on the other end, and then Dallas says, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Somebody, if somebody were to ask you, <coughs> hey, in you know, Western secular uh, culture in a progressive city like Ellsworth, Maine, what is the, what is the we laugh, but you know, we get sucked into it. Uh, what is the greatest challenge in your spiritual life? What would you say? Think about that. What would you say? Most of us, I don't know, what would, what would you say, I don't know, secularism or political partisanship or liberal theology or racial tension or post-Christian values, you, you just fill in the blank. My guess is that very few of us would say hurry. Very few of us would say that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Remember that Satan, and we believe that there is evil that is personified, right? So Satan does not always show up uh, as a demon with a pitchfork and a cartoon style, okay? He shows up as an addiction to that substance that makes all the noise go away. He shows up to the dopamine rush that is your smartphone. He shows up as another hour at the office or at work on the weekend. He shows up as commitment on top of commitment on top of commitment on top of commitment. Or he shows up as life at the speed of sound. Go, 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 go. Yeah, Carl Jung says that uh, hurry isn't of the devil. It is the devil. Michael Zuccarelli from the Charleston University School of Business did a survey of 20,000 Christians in the United States. And his, I don't know, maybe you got called on this. His data uh, was based on research and identified busyness as the number one distraction from life with God. Here's his summary from his massive research project, and I think I have this on the screen. He writes this, that um, it may be the case Thank you. That Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting non-biblical assumptions about how to live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of busyness and hurry and overload, and then the cycle begins again. And pastors, by the way, are the worst. They're some of the worst. They're up, there, they're up there with doctors and lawyers and then clergy for being, caught, for being you know, tempted to get caught up in this uh, culture of speed. Uh, Ronald Brohauser wrote this. He said, today a number of historical circumstances are blindly uh, flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it's difficult not to think about God or to pray but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. He says, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. I love that. Some of you are right there, right? You didn't hear it because you're distracted right now. I can tell. I see the blue glow on your face. Pathological busyness, distraction, restlessness are major roadblocks within our spiritual lives. I can't help but wonder... It, 
If Jesus would say to our culture today in North America what he said to Martha of Bethany, that famous line in that classic story, that you're worried and upset about many things, you're worried, you're upset about so many things, you've got so much stuff on your to-do list and you're stressed right out and you're in the kitchen and dinner's great, thank you by the way, and I'm hungry, but that's great. But here's Mary sitting at my feet. That's the way of a disciple. I think the need of the hour is what Pete Cesaro calls a slow-down spirituality. A slow-down spirituality. We all know that our, our world has sped up to a frenetic pace. We, we know that. A little, here's a little bit of a history lesson to nerd out on you because there's a couple of you that can come along with me because we're just my fellow nerds. I invite you, the rest of us, you can make fun of us if you want. So, uh, <laughs> where are you going to? So, just give you permission. Ironically, the clock, which I love, it's one of the great inventions, I did not know this until recently. The clock was invented by monks to organize the, their, the monastery around fixed hour prayer so they could make sure not to be distracted by other things to get their prayer in however many times a day. Well-intentioned. Most historians point to the year 1370, I think that's your high school graduation year, yeah, as a turning point in human history, and here's why. Because it's when the first public clock was erected in Cologne, Germany, and it marked a shift in Western European consciousness in our relationship to time. Think about your relationship to time without a watch, without a clock, without a phone. Before that, time was natural, meaning it was set by the rotation of the earth and on its axis and the four seasons and day and night. But the clock created artificial time. And with it, eventually, the slog of the nine-to-five kind of existence and a whole bunch of other issues. So 1370. Then, in 1879, you have Edison and the light bulb, which cut our sleep way back, first of all. 150 years ago, the average American used to sleep 11 hours a night. I know, right? Like, hallelujah. <laughs> you think about it, and you're like, oh, the good old days. Not so, but the sun goes down, you know, and think about it. Think about it. We live in the north, and we live in, in the winter, right? It's like 15 hours of darkness, and what can you do in the dark? You just sleep, you know? Nothing you can do but what you can do with a candle that you probably made. So how good is that candle, you know? So then about a century ago, near the end of the Industrial Revolution, and with more and more widespread, ac uh, widespread access to electricity, Technology started to change our everyday lives and our relationship to time with so-called labor-saving, time-saving devices, which I'm a huge fan of, and I know you are too. Did you know this? People used to chop wood to heat their homes. Some of you don't realize that you don't have to do that anymore. So I'll just say welcome to the 21st century. But like, here's what's really cool now is like now... We speak to Alexa, which speaks to our smart thermostat, and heat magically fills the room. I don't even know where it comes from. Does it come from the floor? Does it come from the ceiling? Does it come from, I don't know where it comes from. It just feels warmer. Thank you, Alexa. I don't know, and I don't need to know. I don't really care. I don't know what that guy with the truck and the long hose, he shows up in my house every month. What he's doing there, I don't know. I just know that when I need heat, I got heat, and that's really cool. Did you know we used to walk everywhere? I mean, it's funny, we're having this conversation just yesterday with some friends, and we're like, it's funny, how, like, you go to the island, and like every community has like four different churches, every little community. Well, that's because those churches were built in an era where we had to walk everywhere. 
or if you were, if you were wealthy, you got to ride a gross, stinky animal called a horse and uh, get that thing to church. How would you like to work that parking lot? <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we used to have to, if we wanted to correspond with somebody, we used to have to write letters with our hands. Like we used this appendage to write things on paper. Paper. You remember paper? We used to wash dishes by hand. With all of our uh, modern conveniences, and our, how many of you wake up to the smell of coffee every morning because of your automatic coffee maker? And you know, don't ever get lost because you have a GPS, and you have your smartphone, and you got Google. Most of us feel like we have less time now, not more. So the question is, where did all that time go? Because technology really does cut back on the time commitment. So the answer is, where did it go? We spent it on something else. Okay, 1960s, all the futurists, and including the sci-fi writers and political theorists, thought that by now we would all be working fewer hours. How's that working for you? A Senate subcommittee in the United States government in 1967 said on record that by 1985, the average American would only work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. <laughs> they thought the main problem in the future would be too much leisure. Since 1973, leisure time has decreased 37% in America. That's a lot. So last Sunday was Easter. Most places of business were closed last Sunday. I mean, even Walmart and Pat's Pizza. So like, what's the point? Why do you even get out of bed, right? Can you imagine, can you imagine a world where once a week, every Sunday, you woke up and the city was shut down, the whole city shut down? It's like a blizzard, but with no internet access, you know? The whole city's shut down, and the one and only thing open is the church. Can you imagine that? Some of you remember it, don't you? Because it's not ancient history. Here, here's how recent that was. I remember it, and I ain't that old. That's not the response I was expecting. And you and I will have a chat later, because... <laughs> All of this kind of reached a climax. Into, not a climax, but a significant ramping up in 2007. Bill reminded me, we're talking about this today, that that's the year that he started attending this church. So that may have been a factor. I don't know how that has to do with anything. It doesn't, I, do you remember what happened in 2007 besides the fact that Bill Butler started attending Faith Community Fellowship? Uh, it changed everything. It changed our rhythm of life. It changed the way we interact with people. It changed the way we approach work, the way we approach leisure time. Anyone in 2007, you remember? Do you remember? How many of you remember? You got it. Apple introduced the first iPhone. And so the iPhone, but not the iPhone in particular, but because the iPhone introduced the technology, the smartphone has literally changed what it means to be human in one decade. We all carry infinity in our pockets. The answer to every unanswered question, we carry it around in our pocket, which is just a bit much. Yesterday, I was driving, had my uh, phone in my pocket, and I said something about, I live in Surrey, Maine. So I said something about Surrey. My phone started talking to me, because Siri doesn't know the difference between her own name and the town I live in. But my phone was in my pocket. Anyway. 
A study done just a couple years ago found that the average smartphone, can I just ask a question? How many of you have a smartphone and use it? Just let me see. Okay. How many of you have it on right now? You're looking, using it right now. It's fine. I have mine too. It's right here. That's how I turn the heat up and down. I feel you're getting a little bit cozy. We just turn the heat down. I just want to know that I'm talking to most of us, okay? So a study done a couple years ago found that the average smartphone user, that's all of us, right? We're maybe above average, pick up their phone 77 times in a day for a total of nearly four and a half hours of screen time. And I did the same thing you did. I'm like, oh, can you believe that? Oh, it's terrible. The darn iPhone has a feature now called screen time. Did you know that? I dare you, look, look at it right now, go look at it. If you got a, if, I don't know what the other phone, the, the inferior one, I don't know what, <laughs> it, how that works, but uh, it's probably has, it probably had the feature first, honestly, but somewhere in your settings it says screen time, and then you can get all this, and it makes me shake when I look at this. I'm like, what? this is my life. Don't be bragging about your smartphone time. <laughs> we all know you're better than us. Um, what is that on your flip phone? Um, my <laughs> can, I just, can I just be honest with you? The average, 77 pickups a day, 277 minutes a day. So I'm just going to be real with you right here, okay? In my screen time, I checked it yesterday, my screen time in the last seven days, 90 pickups. I'm above average in so many ways. That's more than the average, okay? I'm just being honest, there's a little accountability. More pickups, but fewer hours, only two hours and 18 minutes a day on my phone. Did you say, but still? Did someone say, <laughs> I know, right? This is what I said to myself. I decided yesterday, I, was, I decided I would come clean on that. I just was going to read the study. I'm like, no, I need to tell you what my screen time looks like. Those, this is. <laughs> well, no, because I don't pick up. I'm surprised to know that my phone, has, my phone has a call feature. I didn't know. I don't use it for phone calls because I hate talking on the phone. I've found other ways to use it. Psychologists have made the point that the vast majority of Americans' relationships to their phones fall under the category of, in psychology speak, of compulsion. We have to check that last text. We have to click on Instagram. We had to do, like, we've been in church for 38 minutes. You've done it about four times probably. We have to click on Instagram. We have to scroll Facebook. We've got to open our email. We've got to check our notifications. We need, to re, we, we need to see who's doing what on Candy Crush. We need to see pictures from the circus yesterday. We need to know. Here's a standard definition of addiction from just from a textbook, okay? Just a generic standard definition. That addiction is a relentless pull to a substance or an activity that becomes so compulsive it ultimately interferes with everyday life. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with husbands and wives about issues in their marriage, and the key issue has to do, used to be computers. Remember those? We had desktop computers, and we were glued to those all the time. Now it has to do with the phone and phone use and the constant distraction and the never being fully present. So by this definition right here, I know a ton of people who are addicted in some measure to their phone, or at least to FOMO. You know what FOMO is, right? Fear of missing out. That's why we have to check our notifications every 32 seconds. If you don't think you're an addict, I want to challenge you to prove it. Okay? Talk to somebody this week. 
today, family member probably, and commit to turn your phone off for 24 hours, give it to them, turn it off, give it to them for 24 hours. See if by tomorrow this time you're not writhing on the floor, shaking uncontrollably. <laughs> and I know, I know, I know you can't because you're a very busy person and you're very important and people need to be, you need to be accessible 24 hours a day because if not, who, the earth would probably stop spinning on its axis because it's for business. I've heard that excuse. I got it. I got it. It's for work. I got it. It's for work. I need it for work. So you got another addiction. <laughs> if you miss out on some work or something, your problem is not your phone. Your problem is your love of money. All right, let's just move on. All that to say there's something is deeply wrong in our culture. Psychologists and mental health professionals are now talking about hurry sickness. It's a full-on new thing. I've not only read it in books, I've seen it on, on the news when I, I call it news, on opinion shows that are on cable TV. Hurry sickness. Here's the definition. A behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. Can you identify with the rushing part? Can you identify with the anxiety part? Psychology today defines it as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short on time, so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. I know, I swallowed hard right there. Philip Zimbardo is a PhD psychologist uh, and an author. He gives three examples of symptoms of hurry sickness. Let's see if we can identify with any of these, okay? Number one, might, you might have hurry sickness if... If you move from one checkout line to the other because it's shorter. I don't have hurry sickness. I'm just like, well, that's just common sense. Thank God for self-checkouts. Hallelujah. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to one better than self-checkout. Again, back to my addiction to my smartphone. Yesterday, I went to Sam's. Scan as you go. Scan as you go. When you're done, pay. Walk out the door. It's about time Walmart has that. So, Craig, if you can make that happen, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> But then I'll blame my phone for not being fast enough, so I've got to go get a new phone. There's always something, right? It's, if it's, uh, my cell signal isn't good, strong enough, or my Wi-Fi is never fast enough. That's number one. Number two, when you come to a stoplight, you count the cars ahead of you and change lanes accordingly. Anybody? Again, common sense. I was taught that in driver's ed, I'm pretty sure. Um, doesn't everybody do this? Isn't that normal? It was definitely on the driver's test. I know that. But anyway, I actually have a more advanced technique on this. The shortest line isn't necessarily the fastest line at the traffic light. Do you know that? You know that. You need to look at the kind of cars in that line. A 1996 Buick. It's probably somebody 40 years older than me who's going to eventually move off that line by the time the light turns red again. Okay? That sounded really disrespectful, but sorry, it's hard truth. If it's a 12-year-old compact that beat to pieces, thumping bass, and sits about that far from the ground, get behind that guy because there's some 20-year-old kid who's going to burn rubber off that line. So get behind him. So that's what I do in my minivan. I get behind the kid. That's what I do. So <laughs> and I punch it, and my van's like, no, please. <laughs> so, okay, we can identify these two things. And the third thing is that, that indicator you might have hurry sickness is that you multitask to the point that you forget one of the tasks. Not to play armchair uh, psychologist, but 
I'm pretty sure we all have a little hurry sickness. All of us, myself especially included, and none of us are immune from this pull. Ruth Haley Barton writes about 10 signs that you're moving through life too fast, and I'm going to put these on the screen. Number one is irritability. Don't look at anybody right now, please. But like you lose your temper way too easily. Number two is hypersensitivity. You get your feelings hurt too easily. Number three is restlessness, meaning when you actually do stop to rest, you can't relax. You can't fall asleep at night. You don't like to settle in. You can't, don't feel like you can. You fidget and you have to play with something, your phone or a fidget spinner or whatever. Number four, compulsive overworking. You just keep working. You can't not be working. Number five, numbness, meaning you just don't have the emotional capacity for empathy. Number six is escapist behaviors. You're just binge watching all the time. Or maybe it's binge watching, or maybe it's alcohol, or maybe it's social media, or whatever your thing is that you escape with. Number seven is disconnected from our identity and calling. Number eight, not being able to attend to human needs. Like, like even sleeping enough hours in a night, or getting some exercise, or drinking enough water, or just engaging in some healthy habits. Number nine is hoarding energy. So you don't do the thing because you know you've got to do the other thing later. And number 10 is neglecting spiritual practices, where the spiritual disciplines just start to become less and less frequent. So, looking at this list, how you doing? You're like, I'm doing great, I got like seven out of 10. No, that's not how it works, <laughs> you know, I know. <laughs> You're like, shoot, that's my life, right? We can identify with this. Here's what I'm getting at. My point is that in general, we have a problem with time, and the solution is not more time. Ever found yourself saying, I just wish I had a few more hours in the day. I could use two more hours in this day. I could use four more hours. If I just had 10 more hours in a day, that would, you've said that, right? That would not solve the problem. If by some miracle slash sci-fi thing happening, and you get 10 more hours in a day, you and I would just fill up those 10 more hours with the exact same stuff, would end up even more tired and much less effective than we are now. So the solution is not more time. The solution is to slow down and to simplify our lives around the essentials of following Jesus. Our defining narrative arc is from Genesis 1, a story that goes back thousands and thousands of years, is that to be made human is to be made one in the image of God and number two from the dust of the earth. Image of God means we're loaded with potential. We're loaded with purpose. But from the dust means that you are human, you are finite, you are not infinite, and you are not immortal. So we live in this tension. And one of the keys of following Jesus is learning to live into both our potential and our limitations. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. when we talked about receiving the gift of limits. Our culture tends to only want to talk about our potential. And I'm all for that, but it's, like I said a couple of years, it's not true that you can be anything you want to be. It's not true, just dream it, it'll come true. It's not, that, I'm sorry, to, it's just not true. But we've got to talk about and own our limitations. And I think we live in a culture that wants to transgress our, our limitations, to cheat time itself. You know, we've got to read every book, we've got to watch every movie, you've got to see every site, you've got to travel every country, you've got to eat at every restaurant, you've got to go to every concert, you've got to rise to the top of every field, you've got to say yes to every opportunity. I mean, you only live once, right? If that. It's like, no, you're made in the image of God, and you're from the dust. 
you're a human being and you have limitations. You're not God. You were never supposed to be God. And one of the limitations that we all share is 24 hours in a day. And for those of you who are like, well, I'm in. I want to be more intentional about my time. I want to slow down. I want to take up the easy yoke of Jesus and slow down. But I need a little help because life is just like crazy. Here's a few ideas. And this is kind of nuts and bolts stuff. And I hope it's something that at least maybe if you don't take this exact thing that it spurs some thinking in you. Because you've got to figure out what works best for you uh, based on your personality, based on your season of life. So, but you don't start from a blank slate. So we've got a couple thousand years of time-tested practice from the way of Jesus. And so here are four practices to slow your life down. You ready? We're going to move through this quickly. Just kidding. Uh, the first... <laughs> So today, before church, Alethea asked me a question, and we're walking and talking. We're doing the, we're doing the um, uh, what's the show called? Um, the Aaron Sorkin show, um, West Wing, the walk and talk. You ever watched the West Wing back in the, whenever that was? And they would talk, they would walk really fast, walk really fast, and the camera's moving backwards, and they're talking the whole time. We do that all the time here. And so we're doing that today, and I'm like, slow down, slow down. So he's like, what? I'm like, I'm talking about hurry today. <laughs> I can't go into that message winded, and people see me like scurrying all around, so... We're going to take our time, because we have 11 minutes, and we're going to take our time getting through these next four points. Here are the four practices to slow your life down. Number one is Sabbath. And can you write that with a small s, please? Okay? Because there's Sabbath, the Jewish observance of Sabbath, which, by the way, is no more. And then there's the human practice of lowercase Sabbath. I'm convinced more and more that this is just a key practice in our day and in our culture, maybe more than ever before, to set aside a day a week just to be. Not to do, just to be. If you're going to do, make sure you're doing the things that give you life. The life-giving activities. I would, I would even say, make sure those activities are the ones that bring you closer to God. Lean into the, spa, the pathway. John Ortberg talks about spiritual pathways. Lean into the pathway where you connect best with God on your Sabbath. It's an intentional thing. Sabbath doesn't just happen. I've been meaning for months to have a Sabbath. Haven't you? You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like saying, yeah, let's get together sometime. Good intentions don't result in Sabbath. So we've got to be really intentional about this. And you've got to act on it. When you first start practicing Sabbath, you'll probably find this is really hard. To unplug, to slow down, to engage in something that connects me with God and feeds my soul. Here's what, here's what ha- happens though. Practicing Sabbath does something that kind of fixes the other six days of the week. It's like, a, it's like a governor to put a cap on the speed of your life. So number one is Sabbath. And we may talk a little bit more about this in the next few weeks as we continue to talk about emotional health. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Number two is a fixed schedule. This may or may not be your cup of tea. I, it's based on how spontaneous or how in the moment you like to be. This, um, but I lean into this. And this is, was actually started in the monastery movement as well, and then years later it kind of spread to the business world. It's where you schedule out an ideal week. So you take a, a blank piece of paper, if you're still using paper, or you take a digital calendar. I use a digital calendar. Whatever works for you. It's, there's no right or wrong, but make sure it works for you. At the end of your week, 
you schedule out for the coming week your, your ideal schedule for the week based on the things that you need to accomplish and the things that are expected of you. So work, because that's the thing that takes most of your time. Rest, exercise, spiritual discipline, connection with others, the small group that you're a part of, that afternoon coffee with a mentor or someone you're mentoring, um, you know, time with your kids, with your spouse. What, put it all on there. Like, it feels so rigid if I do that. Yeah, well, how are you doing at getting those things prioritized? Make sure that everything that goes into your ideal fixed schedule fits your vision for your life that will take you where you want your life to go, that will take your relationships where you want your relationships to go, that all the values that are reflected in your weekly and monthly rhythm are the values that you hold to. And then, of course, there's a place there to be open to the interruptions of life from the people that you love and care for, and, of course, those promptings from God. We have to be open to that. Number three is simple. I'm just calling it simpler living. Um, this is somewhat relative, depending on how simple your life is now. And this is an ancient practice. It goes all the way back to the life of Jesus himself. The basic idea is to strip your whole life down to what really matters and to live deliberately. Start with your money and your possessions. Give away the stuff you don't need. Even the money you don't need. You can give it away. Get rid of the clutter, all the extra stuff. You don't need 25 pairs of shoes. You don't need that, v, you don't need that VHS collection. You don't need those books that sit on a shelf that haven't been opened in 10 years. Yeah, you can throw books out. Did you know that? It's not like an American flag. You can actually throw it out. It's okay. You can, you can throw books out. Start with your stuff. I'm, just, I'm not making light of it, but start with your stuff. Get rid of some stuff. Give it away. Don't give away the stuff that isn't worth anything. Nobody wants your junk. Throw it out. Here, I know you'd love to have my VHS collection. Come on, really? That's what you think of me? I know you'd love to have these commentaries from the 1800s. No, I wouldn't. Start with your stuff and then go move on to your activities. Simplify your activities. Simplify the commitment to activities. Your entertainment habits. If you had to be in Bangor Friday night or Saturday morning to watch a movie, you had to. Just ask yourself what's really going on. And that's fine, like I get it. No, I don't. But um, it, it was nice though. Starbucks was really quiet yesterday morning, so that was nice. But um, look at the way you spend your leisure time and simplify it. Oh, by the way, your kids don't need to be signed up for seven sports things at the same time. I would argue having, and I, get to, I sat on this for a lot of years, never said anything about this, now I've raised my kids. They've turned out halfway decent, and so I'd like to... <laughs> Aaron's pretty great. So, um, <laughs> so uh, anyway. No, I just, I really do want to, like parents, your kids... You're like, oh no, we'd never sign them up for multiple things at the same time. Here's the other thing. They don't have to be signed up consecutive seasons either. You don't have to go from the basketball gym to Dick's Sporting Goods to get the, ne- get the cleats like the next day. Like, you don't have to do that. 
if you, oh, let's just be honest. If you're trying to live your life through your kids, I just want to encourage you to talk to some people about this. Talk to people who are further down the road. Talk to people who have healthy relationships with their adult children and ask, them, how'd you get there? How'd this happen? How, did you, how are these people like honoring to your family and honoring, they have a, they have a, a love for God and they're contributing citizens? Like how, how, what, what are the things? Don't live your life through your kids. Give your kids a break, let them be kids. I kind of feel passionate about that. I just discovered that. It's cool. Um, and sometimes we just need to ask ourselves, what are we doing? Who are we trying to impress? Who are we trying to impress with the image we're trying to keep up? So whatever we're talking about, strip it down. Get your life down to the core practices that really make for life to the full. Embrace your limitations as well as your potential. And in doing so, you're closer to discovering joy and contentment. The simple act of let's strip my life down, let's live with simplicity around what really matters, I think is a huge way forward. So we're talking about practices to slow your life down. Number four, this sounds a little bit kind of like simplistic and maybe redundant, but slow down the overall pace of life. So here's what I mean by that. Like I'm always on the lookout, and, I, and, I'm, and my guess is I'm not alone, for little ways to slow my life down. So I made a list of my slow yourself down rules for me. Okay, so this is, you don't, please don't write these down like, oh, to be like Todd, I need to know that's not, but maybe just it will spur something in your own thinking that connects with you. Um, so here's my first one. Drive the speed limit. Okay, d not on the interstate, of course, we all know that, but drive the speed limit. I was in Boston Friday, you can't drive the speed limit on the interstate, sorry, you can't do it, you can't do it, it's dangerous. Drive the speed limit. Come to a full stop at a stop sign. You should try sometime. It is wild. I may or may get behind the Buick and just take in the view. I may or may not have been ticketed in college when I was delivering pizza for Domino's Pizza for rolling through a stop sign. But it's maybe not the only time that it's actually happened. Show, show up 10 minutes early to an appointment and don't take out my phone. How many times do I have an appointment with you and I'm there when you show up and I'm on my phone and I'm working at that. Oh, by the way, if showing up 10 minutes early is hard for you, you're always late or, or you're at least at the very best blowing in the door just as the meeting or whatever is starting. I know you're determined to show up 10 minutes earlier. I know, but it never seems to work out for you. Here's just a practical tip. It's not as simple as leaving 10 minutes earlier, okay? You have to start getting ready 10 minutes earlier. So if it's a morning thing, maybe you need to get up 10 minutes earlier. Just saying. Here's another one. This is for me. That sounds silly, but this is how, for me, is to walk slower. I'm a walker. I like to walk fast. I have stuff to do. I have people to see. I have a world to change. Get out of my way. Mostly I just need to get to my coffee. I need to get to the computer. I need to get to my phone. Get out of my way. Here's what I learned about how people walk. Most people walk slower than me. It's very annoying. It happens in this building on Sunday morning. If you're strolling through the building, you sense a presence behind you, and all of a sudden your neck is warm and moist. It's my breath. Either step on it or get out of the way, because like, I gotta go nowhere, right? 
Uh, it's funny, but I'm working at that. Here's something new I tried recently. Alethea and I spent a week uh, in, with her mom and dad in Tennessee a couple weeks ago. We were gone for six days, and I didn't bring my laptop. I did bring my iPad, which I never turned on. I even took it with me to Starbucks one day. My father-in-law had to take his car to the shop, so I had him drop me at Starbucks. So my intention was to do a little sermon prep. You can always get away with technology time if you're doing that. So I was going to do some reading, maybe catch up on a couple emails or whatever. So I brought a book and my Kindle and my iPad and my earbuds. I was ready, man. That's how you go to Starbucks. And I ended up just reading. No music, no note-taking, just reading. I think they, I looked it up, they call this single tasking. It's a thing from the 90s, you may not remember, where people would do one thing at a time. I didn't do it on purpose. But I found that by not having multiple devices keeping me connected to everything and everybody and keeping my brain overstimulated, I found pleasure in doing one thing. And I was able to breathe in the moment. That's eye-opening for me. Here's what I'm learning. Because you know I'm not teaching from a position of mastery today. I'm very much along for the journey. Here's what I'm learning. That to live this way in community, emotionally healthy, full of the Holy Spirit, transformed as we follow Jesus, the vast majority of us have to slow down. Just, and it just takes time. It takes a whole lot of time. It takes, I might have just said the word Surrey. I don't know, that's why your phone's talking to you. But, um, it just... <laughs> It just takes, it takes time. It takes a whole lot of time and it takes intentionality. And sometimes, listen, it takes courage to break through a comfort zone and to try something new. It takes living out the practices that we see in the life of Jesus, things like silence. Most of us are uncomfortable with silence. Couple that with solitude and it's really freaky. But in Jesus' life, we see silence, and we see solitude, and we see prayer, and we see spending time in the Scripture. It means taking a Sabbath and slowing down and unplugging and living in community. The number one problem you will face in your relationships, in your career, in your service to others, in your own spiritual development is time. And I get it. I'm here with you. I'm no different. I got a job to have things that I'm responsible for. I'm... You know, I'm doing other stuff. I have a spouse. I'm trying to you know, have adult children I want to have a relationship with. I have a grandson I want to be in the moment with. I'm trying to live in community with other people. I get, I get how hard this all is. It's easier said than done. Because those of you who know me know I have a get stuff done gear that I can just slip into. And, you know, I'm on it. I can prioritize it. I can multitask with the best of them. I can get it done whenever you throw at me. No problem. I can get it done. Um, at the same time, when I'm getting it all done, I can find myself to be an inconsiderate jerk. Oh, thanks, Mom. So a, few, <laughs> so a few years back, I made a decision. I had to make a decision about the kind of life that I was going to live, about the kind of uh, man that I was going to be and grow into and mature into or not grow into and not mature into. And I really believe that what we do matters, but I'm very passionate about the thing that God has, has called me to do, specifically my role as a leader in the church and the role of the church and the lives of all of you. But I had to think about who am I going to be, what kind of person am I going to grow into. So with all the things that I wanted to accomplish, with all the things that I wanted to just kind of make happen, I came to a place where I realized that the more, most important thing in life 
is who we become. And for me, thanks to a, a life-changing little book that I read about 15 years ago, I realized I couldn't become the man, the husband, the father, the leader Jesus had called me to become and move at the pace I had established. So um, Malitha and I talked a lot about this and I reordered some things and I eliminated some stuff and I said no to some opportunities and I reprioritized some things and I came up with a new definition of what success looked like for me or even what a productive day looked like for me. And I haven't mastered this. It's been a 15-year process for me. This is kind of behind the scenes of my life. You're getting a little peek here. I'm constantly working on this slowing down thing. Because honestly, it's one of the main things that holds me back in my spiritual practice. So listen, this is where the rubber meets the road. We've gone long, but who's keeping track of time today? We all have to decide, will we continue at breakneck speed through life? Will we continue to add all the stuff on and just try to work in a little Jesus stuff along the way when we have time and when we have space and work in a little family time when we can make it happen and just work in a little one-on-one with the kids to appease them and just work in a little conversation with our spouse and just work in a little sliver of solitude or silence, meditation or prayer or scripture and just try to figure out a way to kind of have it all, do it all, accomplish it all, keep the, high, keep the image highly polished or, or, will we radically alter the pace of our lives, slow it down, and begin to orient our whole lives around the easy yoke of following Jesus. That's the decision we have to make. We talk a lot around here about following Jesus. It's what we desire for everyone who comes through these doors, that for that matter, for everyone we do life with, whether they ever come through these doors or not, that they would become followers of Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me, sometimes around the church we call it, we use the word disciple. It's a word from the New Testament that simply means a follower and a learner. It comes from the geek, the geek, the Greek word. Uh, it comes from the Greek, so interchangeable. It comes from the Greek word uh, mathetes, which is translated in our English New Testament as a disciple or follower, and it's used 268 times. So it's a, it's, it's kind of a recurring theme throughout the New Testament, and it's a noun. It's not a verb. In the New Testament, every single time it's used, it's used as a noun. But around the church, especially I would say in my church experience in the Western North American church, when people say disciple, they use it as a verb. People say things to me like, what are you doing to disciple people? Who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? But in the language of the New Testament, you can't actually disciple anybody. You can't be discipled by anybody. If you want to actually take New Testament language, you either are or you are not a disciple. So think about it this way. Just swap out the word disciple for the word believer. It's another word that's used in the New Testament and often interchangeably. Then ask the question, Todd, who are you believering? I know it's terrible grammar, but it's also not a thing. Can you even do that? It seems to me you either are or you are not a believer in Jesus. Why does this matter? Listen, I'm going somewhere because I've got to find a place to land this. Here's why if you think of disciple primarily as a verb, as something that's done to you, or done for you, it puts the responsibility for the kind of Jesus follower you are on somebody else, on your mom or your dad or your mentor or your pastor or your youth leader or whatever. And that's not all wrong. Like, I have a responsibility as a pastor. I get that. I have a huge responsibility as a father. I have a responsibility as a leader in the church. We all have a responsibility as followers of Jesus. I get that. But I've heard from people from, who have left this church or people who have come from another church, and, and they will say, with an attitude, they will say, well, nobody ever discipled me. I think what they mean is nobody ever transformed me into the image of Jesus. 
Nobody ever gave me the password. Nobody ever gave me the recipe for the secret potion. Nobody ever did the work for me. But if you think of disciple as a noun, as something that you are, an identity, it puts a responsibility on you to follow Jesus. It puts a responsibility on you to be in a place where you are transformed into his image. Oh, you still need community. It doesn't happen without that. You need influence. You need the input and guidance of others, absolutely. But hopefully you get my point. All I'm saying is we have to decide that we want to follow Jesus. I can't decide for you. Nobody can make you into the image of Jesus. I can offer a roadmap along the way sometimes for certain things. Because I'm on this journey too. A whole bunch of other people sitting all around you are on this journey too. A whole bunch of other people have gone on before us for a couple thousand years. Some of them are really smart and really amazing. They've been on this journey too. So, so yeah, we can say, here's what I've discovered. Here's what I've learned. Come with me. That's all we can do. At the end of the day, there's Jesus, the rabbi, the Messiah, the Lord of the universe. And his invitation to you and me is come, be my disciple, be my follower, be a learner. It's an invitation to an abundant life. It's an invitation to an unhurried life where you tuck in shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. And don't get me wrong. It's no utopia. It's not heaven on earth. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes things don't go the way you want them to. But Jesus comes alongside and we get to join in on what he's doing to be part of his beautiful, messy, upside down kingdom. And that's good. Listen to this.
Life is short, I wanna live it well.